We've been doing a, a series through one of the, the sections of the Bible, which is about faith. Um, it gives us lots of examples of what faith looks like, um, how faith works in just day-to-day life, how it changes your decision-making, how it changes the way you approach life, and how you live before God. And so nothing could be more relevant for us as Christians than um, thinking about this question. And we've gotten to one of the characters in the Bible called Abraham who um, I'm sure everyone's heard the name Abraham, but I, don't, I doubt that everyone knows exactly who he is. And so I want to fill you in a little bit. But I just want to start by saying it's really hard to exaggerate the importance of this guy Abraham in world, in world history. It's really hard to overstate just how much of a difference he's made. I mean, you, if you try and imagine a world with no Jews, no Christians, and no Muslims, you're beginning to get close to what the world would look like if Abraham hadn't been around. And I know some people think that'd be amazing. <laughs> that'd be like... <laughs> I know, especially like when there's so much conflict in that that comes on the back of these three religions and they're competing and warring views. And you know, the way to understand that is just to recognize that it, it's almost like brotherly rivalry in some senses, that they have this kind of similarities and differences which have given birth to all this sort of conflict over the years. But... You've got to understand that the world into which... So Abraham was around about 1,800 years before Jesus. And the world in which he lived... I think that's right. You can check later on Wikipedia. The world in which, <laughs> the world in which he lived was a world that was dominated by bizarre uh, deities um, who you know, were angry or difficult to please or unpredictable and emotional and you might worship the god of the moon or the god who's in the sea or and you might worship your particular god and favor your god over others because you think your god's stronger and so there's all this kind of bizarre pluralism in the world in which Abraham uh, grows up um, but Abraham's different because he believes in one god which of course is the, the big distinction of Christians, Muslims, and Jews, and how and what makes uh, those faiths different from so many other faiths. It's, it's a belief in the one God. Okay, what we say about that God differs in each faith, but that's what kind of he, he began to preach and to, to demonstrate in his life. This this unique faith, really. And so if you try and imagine a world where the, his influence is ripped out of it, you've got a world that's full of superstition and fear. A world that maybe doesn't have a scientific revolution because if your gods are unpredictable and bizarre and do weird things, you don't believe that order is in the world in which we live. Actually, a lot of science came on the back of a recognition of God and his character and his faithfulness and his steadiness and his predictability and who he is mirrored in his creation. You don't necessarily have a world where there's human rights because um, the the Abrahamic faiths believe in a, a kind of um, a recognition that we as people were made in the image of God and therefore we're invested with dignity. You take that, these faiths out of the world and what are you left with? You're left with other views of what humanity is and how we can, we can make sense of whether we have value or not. Lots of superstition. I just say it's basically impossible to imagine a world without the influence of this man and what happened through his descendants. Um, no Hollywood. So much of Hollywood and the stories that we've learned have been told by people who've descended from Abraham and in very literal sense. And so he's a spiritual ancestor of so much that we enjoy and take for granted. And in fact, just to make this a little bit more personal, you've got to understand that Abraham is, is basically a spiritual father to anyone here who, who believes that there is a God. There is one God who made everything. And if you're a Christian, that's even more specifically and, 
and definitely true of you. Paul says in, in, in one of the other books in the New Testament, he says that Abraham is the father of us all who share the faith of Abraham. So he's a kind of like, um, he's a forerunner of everybody who, who believes in God in the same kind of way. So obviously a lot of movements in the world have a belief in a father figure, a forerunner. You can think of things like communism, which has a figure like Karl Marx. They look to him as a father of communism. Or evolutionism looks at someone like Charles Darwin or even Wing Chun Kung Fu as a father in this guy. I think his name is Enkai. Again, you can check Wikipedia. I'm not totally sure on my facts there. But Abraham is the father of everyone who believes. But his story is so unlikely. How can this man be a world-changing character? Abraham's basically an Iraqi Jew before Jews existed. Okay, so he's the father of all Jews, but he's from Iraq. So, Jeremy, can you just stand up for us a minute? <laughs> this man is, is <laughs> he's half Iraqi Jewish. So, when we talk about Abraham, when we talk about Abraham, just imagine Jeremy, but a lot older, with a massive beard. So, that is Abraham. And he's, he's kind of uh, probably... The nearest modern equivalent might be someone like the Bedouin who live in, in the Arabian deserts and, and keep livestock. You know, this is the, the mental picture you should have in your mind of this guy. Grown up in Iraq, he's moved a little north to Syria with his father and, and family. And then, you need to get your finger in two places in the Bible. We're going to f- turn first to Genesis 12, which is page 14. And I want to just read to you a few verses there. Because then, this guy, out of nowhere, out of the blue... This happens to him. He's, he's basically just one in a long list of descendants from, from Adam and from Noah. And then this guy, Abraham, is just plucked out of obscurity. And this is what makes the difference in his life. Why he becomes a world-changing character. Genesis 12 says, Now the Lord, this is the one God, he said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I'll make of you a great nation. Now please remember This is one man married to a wife, Sarah, with no children. There is no such thing as a Hebrew or a Jew at this point. And he says, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. And then he says, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So the effect of your life and your descendants will be that the world will experience the impact of my blessing coming through you. And even the most sober reading of history has to say this has happened. You think about all the incredible developments of God's blessing in history on humankind through the Jewish people and then also through Christians. And he says, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I'll curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And it says these key words, so Abram went as the Lord had told him. This is the beginning of the story of this people group. Now, I want you to turn over to to Hebrews chapter 11. It's page 1754. And we're going to just read a few verses from there. And what he he wants us to notice about this guy's faith and his wife. So, let me just read to you Hebrews 11, page 1754. I'll read to you the first two verses and then we'll skip down to verse 8. Which is about just over halfway down the page. So it says this. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. And then he gives us the example of Abraham from verse 8. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. 
By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, which is modern-day Israel, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, this is his son and his grandson, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations. He's speaking here of, of heaven, whose designer and builder is God. And by faith, Sarah, this is Abraham's wife, herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, she's about 90, since she considered him faithful who had promised. It's an understatement, isn't it? She was past the age. (laughs) Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, you can imagine he's old, he's impotent, he he has no chance of having a child. He says, him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. We can hardly do better then when we want to think about what faith is and to look at this man and what, he want, what this writer of Hebrews wants to tell us about him. And I want to show you three things about his faith that I find impressive, him and his wife's faith, three things that impress me from these, these verses that we're looking at here. The first is this, that Abraham and Sarah obeyed God without knowing everything. Think about what faith is. Some, faith always begins at some point in the heart, it's a conviction, you know, it's, it's how he puts it earlier on, an assurance, a conviction of things that you don't, haven't seen. It begins as a kind of gut level belief in something, which you can't necessarily prove or um, have not seen with your eyes, but that you believe it is true, emotionally or in your mind. But faith isn't really faith until that belief connects itself with action, with some concrete action that kind of demonstrates or proves that what you believed all along. You know, if you're not willing to act on the things that you claim you believe, then you didn't really believe them in the first place. You know, if you, if you say to your spouse, you know, I really believe you're a great driver, but you don't get in the car when they're driving, then your, your faith is not real. It's not demonstrated by your actions. So you've got to understand that that's how faith works. It begins as a conviction, but it always results in some kind of solid, concrete decisions that demonstrate what you believe. But the thing about faith is that decisions made on faith are by definition costly and very difficult. I'm not sure that you can call them faith if they don't involve some kind of cost and some kind of challenge and some difficulty. You think about this in terms of cost. If there's no risk involved, if there's no sacrifice involved, then you don't have to exercise faith. We know this just in normal day-to-day life. You know, if, you, if you're going to step out you know, in faith, as it were, to start a business or something, if, there were, if it was a completely risk-free venture, you wouldn't really need to use your faith, would you? But because you, there's a risk involved, it requires some kind of belief, some kind of core conviction that it's possible, that it can be done, or something like this. If there were no difficulty... There were no challenge involved, it wouldn't really be faith either. He told us at the start of this chapter that it's the conviction of things not seen. So there's always a tension between the things you see with your eyes and the things that you believe in your heart when it comes to faith, that there can be something of a tug of war between them. Everything in the world around you wants to pull you away and everything that you believe in your heart wants to pull you toward and that there's a difficulty, there's a tension. And this is true of becoming a Christian in the first place and of every subsequent decision you make in the Christian life in obedience to God. 
You know, a person, when they become a Christian, on the face of it, just in terms of what you see, what do you see when you walk in here and you worship with other people? You see a bunch of people in a room worshiping an invisible being. And you're going to see a guy later get dunked in water for apparently no observable reason. <laughs> and you think, on the face of it, that this is, this, what you see is not very much. It doesn't really make sense of what's happening. So there has to be some kind of invisible element going on here, something you can't see, the faith aspect to it. And to become a Christian is that. It's to trust in a God you haven't seen. It's to believe in a Savior who you never heard in person. Yeah, there are people who did see him and walk with him and saw him die on the cross, saw him raised from the dead three days later, and then told the world about that. But you didn't see it. So to become a Christian always involves this element of cost and of risk. It can be very real, the cost for some people. You've got to say goodbye to friends you loved sometimes if, if they can't understand that decision. Or you have, to, you have to turn your back on a lifestyle that was yours before you became a Christian. There's always a cost involved and often huge difficulty for many people. And then, of course, in the Christian life, when it comes to obedience towards God, obedience is difficult at times because it is always this tension between what you see with your eyes, what seems so right to you in the moment, especially when it comes to sin or indulgence or wanting to invest um, in, in, in things that you can see and touch and feel as opposed to what God is calling you to, how faith can pull you into self-sacrifice and cost and risk and all these kinds of things. So there's always this dynamic that's going on in, in the life of faith. And here's the thing. We naturally want as much information and as many guarantees as possible before we take steps that involve cost and risk, don't we? I mean, especially in this day and age, I think. You, you don't buy a, a pair of headphones these days without reading every possible review that's available <laughs> on the internet because you don't want to risk your money before you invest in something. And this is just a very minor, unimportant decision in, in the grand scheme of things. We, we want to maximize our knowledge and minimize our risk always in life, don't we? And all the more so in an age like ours when there is, we basically live in the safest time in history that is possible to be alive, in the safest country in history, I think. You know, from the moment you're, you're conceived, there's a government-run organization that is devoted to making sure that you are born healthily and safely, and after you're born, to take care of you. And then the government's also there to make sure that if you were to run out of stuff, they're going to make sure you have enough to live on, that you're, not, you're never going to starve. It would be very hard to starve. And then as you grow older, and you, you learn, you get some possessions. You can not only own them, but you can insure them and make sure that if ever they go missing or burnt or damaged or broken, someone's going to replace them for you. And if, if you're going to drive in a car, that's going to be insured and all risk is mitigated and minimized. And then you have insurance to cover your insurance. So if you crash that car, you've got a second insurance policy to make sure you don't lose your, your no-claims benefit. We live in the safest time in history with the least risk possible. And so at a day and age like ours, I think faith is, stands in antipathy to, to the way that we're wired to live and act. We're not accustomed with acting without, without guaranteed safety and all the rest of it. And I think this is one of the great reasons why people find it hard, so hard to become Christians in the first place. And why when they're Christians, their life is so often devoid of anything that resembles radical faith like you see in the Bible. But when we look at Abraham, I'm so impressed by this first thing about his faith that 
You know, when you saw it in the passage in Genesis, it said, God says to him, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So I'm not going to tell you where. I'm not going to tell you how far away it is. I just want you to go and then I'll show you when you get there. And then it says, so Abraham went. And it's so impressive because, you know, for him, for us, it means that trusting God is not knowing everything that he knows. If you knew everything that God knew, you wouldn't need to exercise faith, would you? It means that you're you're not doing away with all potential risks and dangers of obedience. And often in the Bible, God calls for obedience that does involve very real risk, very real danger, and he doesn't guarantee safety. This is why so often in, in the scriptures, we find people obeying in ways that ultimately hurt them in the short term, only because they want to obey a God who is greater than them. And maybe you're someone who for whom just taking that first step is the real challenge because you want to have all your ducks in a row. Maybe you're not a Christian. You've been thinking about it, weighing it up. What does it mean to follow Jesus? And you've wanted to explore and understand every possible risk and benefit so that you can make an informed decision. And sometimes I think that your faith has to work a little bit like Abraham's. You just take a step and trust that God's going to back you up somewhere down the road, even if you don't know what it's going to look like. And it's true also in the Christian life. I think it's so much harder to obey when we have no idea what obedience is going to look like tomorrow or the day after. But what is Abraham showing us here is that we don't have to have everything sewn up. And that God, sometimes it's better that you're in movement, as it were, rather, even if you feel like you, maybe you're not sure you're making the right decision, than that you make no decision because you're paralyzed by the fear and all those kinds of things. So Abraham is the model for us of what it means to obey without knowing everything. Because, why? Because we trust that God is good. That's why a person like Abraham can step out and trust him. It's why someone can become a Christian in the first place. Sure, you, you don't know what it's going to do to your life ultimately. You don't know how much your life is going to have to change. But you come to a point where you say, I think that God is good. That's why I want to trust him. They obeyed without knowing everything. That's the first thing about him. The second is this, that they, they didn't lose their edge as time went by. So he tells us in verse 9 that by faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Now, you've got to understand, okay, Generally speaking in life, the tendency, the trend always is to move towards more and more settledness and greater safety and security, isn't it? And this is why so often we just see how people are so radical when they're young, but the older they get, usually, most commonly, the less radical and less passionate they get, and the more they just want to settle down and make sure life is safe and secure. You see this in politics all the time, don't you? Because you think when, when people are young, they tend to have a tendency, they want to vote for the more left-wing parties, you know, they don't have any possessions. So it's like, please, government, give me more. So I'm voting for, <laughs> I'm voting left. And then the older you get, maybe you, you get married and you both got dual income and maybe you buy a home and maybe you've got kids who you want to you wanna pass something along to when you're older. And the more, the older you get, the more safe you want your life to be. So you, you tend to swing your vote over to the right because it's a little bit less risk. You know, you don't trust the government anymore and you're not going to give money away for nothing for nothing. So I might, as well, I might as well make my life as safe as possible. And you see it also in movements in history that often the first people are the pioneers. 
the ones who are kind of uh, willing to take a step, willing to be uh, risk takers. And then as the next generation comes along, and they're certainly the one after it, you go from pioneer to sort of maintainer. This is why so often, you know, you think about how in this country we have churches on almost every street, right? It seems like that. In some towns you can literally find a, a, a church on every street because there were previous generations who were very pioneering. They wanted to plant more churches as we've sought to do here. They've wanted to spread the, the message about Jesus and they've taken risks and they've taken financial risk and personal cost to make sure that they do things that, that, that are costly for the sake of the gospel. People who've bought literally one-way tickets to go and live in other countries where they never knew if they would ever return. And you think about this pioneering energy that you see in waves come in the church history. And then so often it gives way to a settledness and a safety. As the second generation wants to just batten down the hatches and make sure things are as safe as possible and secure as possible. And then before you know it, no more churches are being started. And the churches that we do have are empty. And you see this tendency all the time, I think, in people. But it's clear to me, when you look at Abraham, his faith... That he and his son and his grandson were not willing to sort of lose their edge in terms of wanting to trust in God. And it's demonstrated here for us. He very deliberately points out that they were living in a foreign land and living in tents. If you ever camped, you know it's the worst way to live. (laughs) These guys are living in tents. And it it underlines for us, okay, that what God had told Abraham, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make you inherit a land. Abraham never actually saw that come to fulfillment because he never actually owned a significant amount of the land in which he was living. And he lived in a tent. He didn't live in a brick and mortar house. It tells us that in one sense, it looked by all intents and appearances that this thing didn't come to be. Of course, if you know the story, the Israelites, his descendants, came to inherit the land much later, about four or 500 years later. But on the surface of it, it looks like God's not going to back up his promise. And yet, these guys are willing to live in tents, which speaks to me of their willingness to live a radical life, to trust God, to take sacrifices, and to be nimble and obedient and ready to move with every leading of God and his Holy Spirit. I think it is profoundly significant that Abraham didn't build himself a home as he could have done. He didn't want to circumvent God's action. He didn't want to make it happen for himself. He wanted to trust and rely on God. So he said, I'm going to stay in a tent move around according to God's leading, but ultimately I have to wait until God gives me the land that I can call my own. The reason why I say this is because, well, you've got to think about, well, how, how was Abraham able to live like this? This readiness, this obedience, this radical faith that didn't dull and grow stale as he grew older. And he tells us here in the next verse, in verse 10, he says, He was looking forward. This is why he can live in a tent. Because he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. In other words, Abraham was a man who was kind of heavenly minded. He didn't think that having all his possessions sorted out on earth right now was what life was ultimately about. He recognized that ultimately life is about living for God and his kingdom. And we tend to get most settled in our faith, most safe, most unwilling to take risks, the more we invest heavily in this world. Jesus put it like this. He said that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And he was, he was, he was contrasting two options. 
in terms of just your, your money, what you do with your possessions. He says you can either invest heavily in things here and now, possessions, accumulating things, or you can give away. And through generosity, he said it's like you're putting them in a bank account in heaven with God. You're investing in another world, as it were. And he said what you do proactively with your possessions then determines where your heart is most happy and content and satisfied and what you're most thinking about and what consumes your passions and your desires. Which is why when Christians are obsessed by the exact same things that the world is obsessed by, owning a home and having the perfect family and, and having your, your business that demonstrates your, your brilliance and, all, and the perfect career and all these things, the more your heart becomes invested in, in the soil of this world and the less that you're willing to, to, to risk for God. Now, I came across a brilliant quote by Michael Eaton, a preacher, who said that since Abraham did not regard Canaan, this is the land he was in, as his permanent home, why should he build a house and settle down? He lived in tents like someone who would be moving elsewhere at any moment. The Christian is a pilgrim in this world, not a settler. That should be definitive for how a Christian thinks about themselves. You are a pilgrim in this world, not a settler. A pilgrim is someone who is on the move and with a mission. A settler is someone who wants to stop and build. Maybe a home will be useful for us. Living in a brick house is not sin, but we should live in it as if it were a tent. And we're about to move elsewhere quite soon, as indeed we are. Life is short. What are you investing in? It's a challenge not to get too attached to the things that you can touch and, and be, are in, in your life now, your job, your money, your homes, your security. And for some, this will mean something like a life lived in tents. I think for some of us who've wanted to be part of this church here in London, you know, it feels a little bit like that. Our flats can feel not much of an upgrade from a tent. <laughs> You know, because we're, we're wanting to sort of say, okay, we care about the city enough that we will sacrifice space and comfort and a garden and, you know, opportunities to have a dog and take it for a walk. You know, all the stuff that is like the, the idyllic country life. We're willing to sacrifice all that because, well, we want to be here for the city. We love its people. We think that what we have to share is more important than our personal comfort. And in a sense, it becomes a mirror image of Abraham's life. I'm here, I'm living in a tent, but it's worth it because ultimately my heart is somewhere else with God in his kingdom, what he's doing in the world. It's a picture, isn't it, of how we're called to live this life. They obeyed without knowing everything. They didn't lose their edge as time went by. And let me tell you a final thing about their faith. Maybe this is the most helpful of all. Their faith wasn't perfect, and God still blessed them. In verse 11, it says about Sarah, it says, By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who'd promised. Now, I don't know how much you know about Sarah, Abraham's wife, and her story but there are two really embarrassing and awkward moments in Sarah's sort of spiritual walk. One is when, in Genesis 16, 
This is a number of years after Genesis 12 when God has said, I'm going to give you descendants. And they'd not had any children at this point and they're already really old. And Sarah turns to her husband, Abraham, and says that she thinks he should sleep with the maidservant, Hagar, and have a child by Hagar so that the, full, the promise can be fulfilled because you need to have a child. And clearly I can't bear you a child. Now, of course, when you read on through the story, that was absolutely the wrong decision. She does eventually have a child. So Hagar gives birth to Ishmael and Sarah gives birth to Isaac. And then you have these two warring brothers who are still at war. One is the father of the Arab people and the other one the father of the Jewish people. And you think, that, was, that wasn't just awkward and embarrassing. That was a fatally bad misjudgment of how God works. And then a little bit later, a couple of chapters later, some... Some angels visit Abraham and, they, say, and they, they reiterate the promises of God because this is years on and nothing's happened yet. And, they, and Abraham could well be wondering whether he really heard God speak to him at all in the first place. And they begin to say to Abraham in Genesis 18, they say that in a year's time, Sarah, your wife, is going to give birth. Now Sarah, remember she's in a tent, right? We already covered that. And she sat, if you've ever been in a tent, you can hear everything that's going on outside the tent. It says she sat in the door of the tent listening. She's kind of hidden behind a piece of canvas and she's listening to them. What she doesn't realize is that they can also hear her because when she bursts out laughing, they notice. So she laughs and says, you know, is it after I'm worn out and my Lord, as is Abraham is old, shall I have pleasure? In other words, are we, you know, probably they don't have any kind of sex life to speak of. And she's saying, am I really going to sleep with my husband? Am I really going to have the joy of having a child now? And she laughs it off and then the, and then God says to her, why did you laugh? And she says, I didn't laugh. He says, you did laugh. <laughs> so not only is she lacking faith, but then she tries to lie to God. Who, she's just behind a piece of canvas, and clearly he, he heard her, and, and he also knows everything. So um, these are not the most glorious moments in Sarah's life. They're not, she's not, you know, it's hard to look at her and think, wow, what a hero of faith at, this, at these points. You know, you imagine your grandma getting pregnant if you have a grandma. <laughs> or if you don't have a grandma, imagine you, your, your, your iPhone pings with the BBC dun, 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 and it says, the queen is pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> this is like, I can totally sympathize with Sarah at this point. Like, there's no way on earth she should be having a child. And so we can kind of offer her some sympathy, but I think the point isn't really for us to go there, I think when we look at this story and think, well, why is she being held up by this guy as a hero of faith for us to, to learn from? It's not because, you know, we're meant to, you know, we could get confused by dodgy role models by, like this, but I think the point is we're meant to take an honest look at Sarah and say, my faith is a little bit more like hers. You know, I believe that God's promised good things for his people, but most of the time I find myself doubting struggling. I find it hard to obey God because the sacrifice seems too real. I find it hard to walk as a disciple. I find it hard to say no to that thing which is so tempting in order to obey him because I know it will please him. But I find that hard. I find that difficult tension. I find it hard to lay down that, that job or that career even because God has called me to something different. I find it hard to walk in purity or to be generous or whatever it is that requires faith. We're weak, aren't we? We feel the tension like Sarah felt of doubt. Is God really good? Is he going to come through on his promises if I risk everything to follow him? 
And the point is, when we look at Sarah's life, yeah, she was not in many ways a role model of faith, and yet she received power, he says, to conceive even when she was past the age. Why? Since she considered him faithful who had promised. I want to show you what he's saying here and how it works. He's saying that the way faith works is that it's not so much about the amount of faith you have or the size of your faith or the strength of your faith when it comes to trusting God. The all-important thing is who you're putting your faith in. I can give you an illustration of this. If you've ever been on an aircraft, you know there are two types of passengers in an airplane. There are the passengers who who jump on an airplane and just chilled as anything. And, you know, can pull out a book and you barely notice when the thing is taken off. And that's me. I'm really happy to fly and it doesn't bother me at all. And then you have the other passengers, like our, our friend, South African friend called Michelle, who's not here, so she won't mind me mocking her, who as, as the plane is taking off, she is one of those people who kind of grabs the, the bars of the seat and tries to help it up because she's so afraid. And the point is, like, Okay, ultimately, we're both going to end up in the same destination. We have different levels of faith in the pilot and the the engineering of the plane. But we both made the decision we're going to get on that plane. And we both end up in the same place, ultimately. Because the point is not how strong your faith is or how great and mighty it is. The point is what you're putting your faith in and whether it's reliable. And this, my friends, is a perfect picture of how Christianity works. Christianity, uniquely among world religions, is all about putting your faith in God, trusting him entirely. Because the Christian life is not a life in which you are wanting to obey him so you can offer to him all your good works and hope that he he likes them enough to let you into heaven. That's not how it works at all. The Christian life is saying, I could never be good enough. Jesus gave his son, sorry, God gave his son Jesus to die on the cross for me rose him from the dead, and that he took my penalty when he died on the cross. And for me to trust him is to say, God, I believe that your son has paid it all, that he is totally reliable. That's what it means to become a Christian. And some people do it with mighty faith. And their trajectory from the moment they become Christian is only one of growing might and strength in the Christian life. They trust God in amazing ways. Take enormous risks and believe him for great things and do great things with their lives. The history books, and in fact, even my own personal experience is full of people like that. And then there's the rest of us who maybe had just enough faith to take that first step and say, God, I want to believe in you and trust your son, Jesus. But then we find, we feel like a plane that's never quite taken off. We're just bouncing off the runway for the rest of our lives. You know, there's, a, there's always that frustration with ourselves. We feel our weakness. We feel that we've not really got it all together. And that whilst we have moments of trusting God, there are also the moments where we turn back and embrace things that we should have let go, let, let go of years ago. Or we, we doubt him, we doubt his goodness. So we have fear in our hearts and we don't know if he'll come through for us. Well, praise God that he doesn't save people because they have mighty faith. He saves people because they have faith, full stop. And Jesus said, you know, you only need the faith the size of a mustard seed. You just need tiny faith. 
And God says, I'll take you. I'll make you my child. I'll bring you into my family. I'll save you. If you're not a Christian, I just want to, I want to just say that for your benefit, really, because, you know, you can look at Christians and think, oh, they've got to, they, they, they figured it all out before they, they took that step. And usually that's not the case. And often Christians are struggling even in day-to-day life. And our lives often deny the very things we, we say we believe. So don't, you don't really want to look at us. <laughs> and maybe you've been thinking about it. I just want to say it's not about having perfect faith. It's not necessarily about having strong faith. It's not necessarily about having an ever-increasing amount of faith. It's just, it's just having faith. And those of us who are Christians here, we've been saved, but we know that every decision we make in day-to-day life is a reflection of how much we trust God. Our obedience, our willingness to, to choose his word over what seems like an appealing other option. And maybe you feel like your, your faith is weak. You're not as obedient as Abraham. You're not as willing to sort of live in a tent, as it were. You're not someone who, you know, you're, you're someone who's more like Sarah, who wants to wrench God's blessings from his hand by going around him and, and, and finding another solution. Thankfully, God makes it clear that in the end, it all rests upon him anyway. So she considered him faithful who had promised This last verse, therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. He wants us to see that ultimately the burden of this promise fell upon God, not upon Abraham. It was only God who could bring this to full completion, and he has done, by the way. I mean, that ought to just slap you around the face with the obviousness of it. This actually happened against all odds. Abraham and his wife did become a multitude of people. It's all about God's ability. It's all about God's plan. It's all about God's promises. It's all about God's faithfulness. And the Christian life is one of abandonment to God's goodness rather than one of trying to make it all work in your own life. We're going to have the privilege soon of baptizing Warren. And we'll explain to you how that's working in a few minutes. But baptism is just a beautiful demonstration of that. Of saying, God, I trust you with my entire life. And it's a moment, it's a decisive moment in the life of any person when they come to be baptized. They say, I give my life to you wholly. Come what may.